Lovely. It's quite a hard act. So um, we've got, yeah, you can stay there for a while. It's the place to be. But I'm not sure how long I'm going to take uh, introducing you. I've got a few lovely guests. In fact, my parents are here with my nephew, Samuel. And um, it's always cool to have my family come visit from KZN. Um, Nix and I both hail from KZN, and so when our family are here, we try and embarrass them and make them do silly stuff, but I'm not going to do that to you, Sam. When you're 16, the last thing you want is that, right? Okay, okay, deal. But um, Kim, it's, uh, it's awesome to have you with us. I'm going to give a little bit of context. Um, Kim and his son Andy are here in our auditorium and in our church for the first time. Andy, when you were on field team, I don't think you came to visit us here. Um, Andy served uh, in a kind of year of your life uh, team in Rondebosch Common Ground 2017. Yeah, I'm getting all the details right. But go back another nine years, I think, hey, Kim, to about 2008 or nine was the first time we met in Madagascar. Sound right? And um, about a year later, I got to uh, stay in one of Kim's uh, rooms. At the time, you had five children, uh, Andy. Justin, Jeremy, Reese, come on, and the last one, the last one. Evan, ah, oh, if you had given me another four seconds, I would have got it, um, but, um, and, and since then, Joel has been added to their family, so five boys and a girl, he deserves a round of applause just for that, but you know, when people get called to go strengthen and plant churches, um, nine times out of ten, you're like, oh, you, you've been called to go strengthen a church, where are you going? And uh, you hear, you know, we, we feel like God's called us to Vancouver or to Zurich or to, you know, all these beautiful cities around the world. And then um, some people really hear God and uh, they get called to Antananarivo, which uh, is uh, one of the most remarkable, eclectic, beautiful, challenging, poor, uh, diverse, complicated cities that I've ever been to. I feel a bit emotional talking about it because... I want to honor you, Kim. I want to honor Sue. I want to honor your family because it's easy to hear God's call when it's to the, the easy places, the lovely places, the places where there's mountains and rivers and, and oceans and comfort and first world uh, medical aids that are paid by the government and things like that. And then sometimes God calls us to places of discomfort to do stuff that often is left in obscurity and isn't seen, and isn't celebrated, and the stories aren't always circulated across the latest advance uh, kind of things, and it's just an amazing privilege to have stayed in your home, to have watched your family grow up. I'm going to introduce us next week to Andy, their oldest son, who uh, is going to play a much more vital role in the life of our community in the years to come as he comes to support and strengthen our uh, young people, but... Um, but today I want to speak to you, Kim, and just say thank you and well done for being an amazing uh, gospel ally, an amazing man of faith. I, I wish I told you as much as I tell Nick how much your faith and your life and your ministry and your family inspire us to keep serving and, and loving Jesus. So I want you to feel honored. I want you to feel honored by us. We're so grateful for your gift. We're grateful for your courage. One of the gifts you're giving us in your boy who's coming to spend time. Andy arrived two weeks ago. Kim has been basically chaperoning him to transport his life from Madagascar to South Africa to make this his home. And uh, we're grateful on so many levels for your generosity and for your faith. So while Kim 
gathers himself and gets his notes and looks down. Let's give these guys, and I'm going to ask you to stand, and let's honor these people. Sue and the boys aren't here, and Joel isn't here. But I'd love us to give them a round of applause for the amazing faith that they've done. Over to you. Thank you. I think I'm on now. Well, that is quite an emotional introduction. Certainly for me, it's an emotional time. Um, relocating uh, Andy here is uh, almost complete now. I get on an airplane and fly out of here this afternoon, so it's, uh, it's going to be a big day. Uh, but I'm very, very grateful for the friends that God has given us around the nations, and in particular for Roger and Common Ground. And uh, those guys have invested a lot into Madagascar. And uh, I'd love to honor you right up front for that investment. And I thank God for the, the friendship and the partnership that he's brought into our lives. And I see also that uh, you guys are doing a series on the way of Jesus. And I'd like to add a message to that series this morning. And I'm going to go straight into it. And, uh, and I hope you can stick with me for the next while let's pray heavenly father i thank you for the opportunity to come and share this morning in this wonderful local church community i thank you for each person who's here today who will hear your word and what you've laid on my heart and i pray that you would minister to us by your holy spirit and through your word for your glory in jesus name amen so i see i'll just let you know i'm going to be speaking a little bit into the formation circle here, becoming like Jesus. And uh, if I don't speak much about mission or presence, it's, you know, next week you can pray and deal with the presence one with that advanced prayer week. So the mission you have to do, I can't do it for you. So I can help you a bit with the formation this morning. I want to start with a, a scripture that I just thought of. It's not in my notes. Um, hopefully I can read it to you says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So like, I know this is true because I'm struggling to focus. My eyes are getting older and I don't have my glasses. And so this outward self is indeed wasting away. But it says our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul writes that to the Corinthians, and uh, he says that there's something that's very important going on, but it's unseen. And I thought about that, that outward things are wasting away, and I, I love the idea of praying for someone who's sick and seeing God heal them. And we've had miracles sometimes in our church. One time someone walked in the door and God just touched them and healed them physically of something. And uh, I'm all for that. I'm not a cessationist at all. And uh, I really believe in the, the working power of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. But there's something else that excites me. It's that God is not just healing bodies, but he's healing souls. He's He's changing lives, and that formation idea is the idea that none of us is actually exactly like Jesus yet. And so as I stand here, as you sit there, um, let's say we're pretty far off, 
But even while our bodies get older and waste away and decay, God is changing something on the inside to make us increasingly more and more like Jesus. And our, our desire should be to cooperate with that process. And I love the time someone in our church once came and he, he voluntarily confessed, came up and he just wanted to share something with us. He said, you know what, I've been fellowshipping with this church for quite a couple of years now and I've just been listening to the preaching the last few weeks and I was inching towards having an affair and I was going to be unfaithful to my wife, but I'm not. I've, I'm, I'm coming to tell you I'm going to repent of that line of, of life that I was on. And I, I was just taken aback that someone would come voluntarily and say, I was really deep into the process of moving towards something very grievous and sinful. And he would just voluntarily disclose that shame, that weakness, and say, I'm actually inspired by God to turn towards him. And I just think we can celebrate every kind of revival, every kind of healing. And that guy was describing a healing of his values and a healing of his convictions and a, and a redeeming of his mind and all sorts of stuff happening in his heart, in his relationship with God. And I, I'm speaking this morning on one of Jesus' values, the way of Jesus in terms of authenticity in terms of Jesus valuing that which is true, that which is real, that which is authentic. So I wanna talk about that this morning and, and as I talk, I want you to think about how Jesus wants to redeem your life and change your value system so that you're not caught up with the externals that are wasting away, the clothes that people wear, whether I've got new or old jeans on. You know, thanks to modern fashion, you can't really tell anyway. Um, <laughs> But you can probably tell the shoes are old, but you know, that's, they're still comfortable. Those things don't matter. Your address doesn't matter so much. I'm staying in a lovely place at the moment in my brother's home, and I'm not even going to say where it is, because it's so zhuzhi, you'll all get envious. And, and so there's another value system Jesus wants to construct in our lives, and that's built on things that are unseen, like how well your soul reflects the heart of Jesus. And so Jesus values authenticity, and I'm going to give you two examples to show you this. In Mark 11, verse 12, it's a well-known little account that could take a whole sermon on its own. Mark 11, verse 12 to 14, we read, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see it, if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not in the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. They heard what he said. So he, he cursed this tree. He's very angry with this tree because this tree misled him. Now you can, you can look at it in context. He's going to Jerusalem. It starts with something about Jerusalem. Right after this speaks about Jerusalem. And there's a whole parallel here where he's actually passing a judgment on the old covenant and its inability to save people. And I'm not talking about that today. I'm talking about the simple fact that when something looks like you can eat from it, but it's deceiving you, 
It's not helpful at all. And even Jesus gets angry about that. Like if I've been in a place and I see this beautiful fruit and I pick it up and realize it's made out of plastic and I'm feeling hungry and I want to bite into an apple, but it's a fake apple, that's pretty useless. And, and that fig tree didn't really have to be bearing fruit because it wasn't the season for fruit bearing, but nevertheless, it put forward an appearance of being fruitful because it was full of leaves. And yet when Jesus came to find the fruit that should accompany the leaves, there was no fruit. So that, that tree was actually a deceptive tree. And Jesus didn't like the, the facade it was putting on. Now the other example that I, I want to look at, start from, is in John. And it's when Nathaniel is called. So in John chapter 1 verse 43, I'll start reading from John 1 verse 43. The next day... Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law um, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus really liked Philip's character, uh, sorry, Nathaniel's character. So Jesus, um, he sees this guy who calls it as it is. Nathaniel first says, can anything good come out of Nazareth when he gets called by um, Andrew? So he's like, what, um, what at all, so, sorry, with, by, by Philip. So Philip goes to, to Nathaniel, and, and, and Nathaniel responds negatively about Nazareth. He says, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Obviously, the people know the people of that area, and the guys from Nazareth have a bad reputation. And so he's, this guy, Nathaniel, is the kind of guy who just calls it as it is. He calls it as he sees it, and he lives a fairly transparent life, and then Jesus recognizes that in him and says, here's a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit, there's no hypocrisy, there's no guile, there's nothing shady about this guy. He's not keeping shadows, holding hidden agendas, scheming in his mind. He just says it as he sees it. He lives transparently, and Jesus affirms that, and then Nathaniel responds by saying, how do you know me? So how do you know my character? How do you know my heart? How do you see into me? And Jesus says, actually, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. And by inference, I gather that that was somewhere where there was no line of sight. So Nathaniel was out of Jesus' sight, and Nathaniel immediately recognizes Jesus can see what is unseen. He, could have, he knew where I was. It's omniscience. It's the Son of God that he's meeting with. So immediately... He takes it as that, Jesus, you are the Son of God. Immediately he's persuaded. So what's great about Nathaniel is he's not a complicated person. He's transparent, 
He's real, he's authentic, he's genuine. So on the one hand, there's a, there's a fig tree that's got leaves that suggest there should be fruit, and Jesus goes and looks for the fruit, and the fruit's not there, and Jesus is grieved and angry. He curses the fig tree because it's putting on a facade that's not real. On the other hand, there's this guy, Nathaniel, and he is exactly as he says he is. There's no deceit in him. He's guileless, and Jesus is affirming that. And it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful comparison of, uh, of, of situations. And I, I, I promise you, I didn't just uh, word search on the word fig tree or something. It's, it's just a coincidence that it's got fig tree in there. So there's really two versions of authenticity that you get in the world. When you, when you get to this point that you want to start to say, this is the real me, there are two ways you can present authenticity. And uh, there's the, the secular or the humanistic approach where people say, this is me, and then they just kind of full stop at that point. They, they're not going to apologize. You have to accept them for who they are. You just, I don't care whether you judge me. I'm not interested in your opinion. This is me. You have to accept me. It's like, it's just who I am. And in that kind of a situation, it falls way short of biblical authenticity, the kind of real that Jesus is looking for. Because when it comes to the real that Jesus is looking for, God's version is that not only are you supposed to say, this is me, but you're also supposed to say, but I'm willing to be changed. I'm willing to be transformed. I'm willing to grow and be matured. And so when it comes to the idea of authenticity, we have to be careful that we don't just say to people, I'm being authentic and then brush off all our bad character and just say, I am who I am, and that's how I'm always going to be. That kind of situation is very secular, very popular. It's the culture behind having to tolerate and embrace and accept everyone exactly as they are. It's like, you know, I come from Madagascar, so, you know, we all steal there. That's just who we are. So hold on to your phone, because this is me. I take phones. This is what we do. Um, you might notice that I don't have my iPad here. I have printed notes. It's actually because it's the other way around. I, I have an iPad. I normally preach from it, but I heard about crime in South Africa, so I thought it's better, <laughs> better to leave it behind. You, the problem with the, the humanistic thinking, it's built around an idol. It's built around the idol of me that says, I'm going to be authentic by just being shameless. I'm going to just be me, and you have to accept me for who I am, including the, the sin that I won't repent of or even admit. And beyond it, it's even devastating to the person involved, because if they do have shame, they now have no way to deal with it. Because if I say to you, you've just got to accept me who I, as I am, who I am, this is me, there's no hope of transformation. So... Nick Kershaw, a songwriter, singer from my past, probably you're too young, but I don't know. The, he sang in one of his songs, you can see my shamelessness, but not my shame. And that's exactly the situation that the, the current worldview offers us. It's like, we're going to just be out there loud and proud. You can see our shamelessness, but you can't see that the brokenness still exists. You can't see the shame. And because the person's been taught 
you must just stand up for your right to be accepted for who you are with no possibility of transformation, then whoever you are is the end of who you will be. And that is hopelessness. That is hopelessness because it means if you've got issues in your life, you can't verbalize them as weaknesses and you can't change because then in the terms of humanism, you're being inauthentic to your true self. So in the end, you have to just say, I'm born this way like Lady Gaga did. And then you, where do you go from there if you're still not happy in your soul? And this is the problem with the wrong approach to authenticity. It just means accept me for who I am with a kind of spirit of entitlement, but at its root, it's hopeless. It puts a hopelessness in the soul of the person who's told, just accept who you are. That's how you're made. You could never change. The gospel comes further. It says, actually, you are that calls the truth, but it says you can also become more like Jesus. You can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You can turn away from certain choices and embrace other things to the glory of God. So the gospel comes with a different view of who you are and who you can be. And I always think of this example of Gideon in the Bible when I think about the who you are, who, how you see yourself and who you could be. Because Gideon, he's actually a, um, a timid guy. The way the Bible describes it, he's hiding from the Midianites, threshing wheat in a wine press or something. So it's a kind of a covert operation. And Gideon is a little bit... Um, intimidated by the Midianites who are kind of oppressing the Israelites. And the angel appears to him and says, Gideon, mighty man of valor. He's like addresses him as, a, as a, a brave warrior and says, you're a mighty man. But the Bible's also just portrayed him as a timid man. So both the inspired word of God says Gideon's timid, but it also says he's a mighty man of valor. And when you look at how he, he starts that journey, the angel appears to him and gives him some instructions about how he's going to go and fight for the Lord. And by the end of history, when the Bible commentators look back at Gideon, do you know that he is the greatest of all the judges, according to how they assessed the judges of Israel? So he was one of the, the leaders of Israel before they had kings, and he's the greatest of all of those leaders. But in his own eyes, he was a bit timid. So the angel comes to him and says, you're a mighty man of valor and gives him one massive beginning command and that is to go to his father's idols, the Baal worshiping setup that was going on in society and destroy that idol. So of course he doesn't go on Saturday morning while the sun's shining, while everyone's watching. He goes in the night and does it quietly because he's this timid guy, but he's not a weak guy. And so... Effectively, God's version of authenticity is that we are both less than we think we are and more than we think we are. Because we usually sit somewhere in the middle, trying to be a nice guy, putting on a facade of success, showing as like maybe you're a mom and you're wanting to look after your kids and you're feeling nervous that maybe you're not as experienced as some of the other moms. So you, you're doing your best to keep your kids well-dressed and then when you look around, they've left their shoes somewhere and you don't know where they are and you're starting to feel that panic. What are other parents going to think of me? I'm such a failure. And then at the same time, someone comes and talks to you and you put on that smile, that everything's cool, that we're doing fine. And you're not feeling fine and, and you realize you're acting a bit. Inside, you're thinking, Man, I'm, I'm really not that good at this. And if you had to ask truthfully, are you really brilliant at it? 
No, probably not. But no one is. That's not how you think about it. You just think, I'm not very good at it. Everyone else is great at it. But God will come to you and say, you know what? You're probably not that good at this, but it doesn't matter to me. You're still the person that I want to use to bring me glory. You're still the person that I can raise up and defeat enemies through. You're a mighty person of valor. And so the way God sees us is towards the potential future that he's planned for us. The way we see ourselves is like, I hope no one notices that I'm, you know, nervous inside, put on a brave face. But the way the truth sees us is that we're actually very weak and frail. And so we have to learn to live in both of the outer points and not so much just trying to maintain a, a fake middle point. Where, do, where does this all come from? Where does this desire to to appear successful, to appear like we have it all together. Where does it come from? Someone once described uh, human beings as really being fear-driven creatures, and a lot of the time we are. And um, your fears in life, there are many fears we have. We get fear of getting old, fear of losing our health, or fear of being financially ill-equipped, or worse still, fear of just being found out to be not so good at whatever you're supposed to be doing. And um, actually, that's kind of a fear of failure mindset that exists in most people. Deeply driven to succeed, really wanting to show that we can get it right. But the underlying fear beneath the fear of failure is the fear of rejection. The fear of rejection is actually one of the biggest fears that humans carry on a day-to-day -day basis. I've also read that the, the ultimate fear of all is the fear of death. That's a, another philosophical path, but I don't want to go down that one today. Let's talk about this, the fear of failure, the fear of rejection. How does it, how does it drive us? How does it, how does it um, form us and, and, and enslave us? Well, what we tend to do is what I've been describing. We, we become fakers and pretenders and people even have this phrase fake it till you make it and we know we live that way but we do it in so many levels worse than we realize we're const constantly wanting to keep people understanding us through some filter or other like I, I post on instagram only good moments or i share only the parts of me that i think people will accept and like and I, I worry about the things that I'm not good at at times and we live under this curse of comparison and we worry about what other people think of us lots of the time, how they're gonna respond to me, are they gonna like me? Even I have that thought when I come to preach here for the first time. I think, I wonder how these guys are gonna respond. I don't even know, I'm, I'm terrified. Inside, I'm, I'm probably trembling. I had to overcome that kind of thing years ago I had to stand in front of IT experts in a Microsoft conference and uh, I just went to God. I said, God, please just blind them all. <laughs> let, them, let them be fooled. Let them just give me favor. Because afterwards they do an eval form and they rate you for all this professional stuff. And I'm like, okay, I'm terrified. What if I get low ratings? And I say, God, just blind them and make them like me. And he did that. And um, that was very cool. And I learned that God actually is our defender and our supporter and our strength when we're weak. And I, I started to take, take the journey forwards thinking I can do stuff for God. People might, 
might like me because God fools them. But there's an even better position we're supposed to be in. See, C.S. Lewis described the nature of love being such that you, real love needs an other in order to focus its attention on. So if you, if you understand love, love needs an object of affection. It needs somewhere to put its focus. Other, otherwise, all you have is like a narcissism, some kind of a self-love, and that's not real love. So if you want to understand authentic love, you need an other. That's what C.S. Lewis explains. Someone else said that love requires a self-forgetfulness because if you can't forget about yourself, you can't put your attention, your focus on the other to love. So genuine love is now going to require a kind of a self-forgetfulness, which means that if, if, if I could just forget about myself for a minute, I could do someone else more good. And so what I'm talking about this morning is important because when we move to the place of understanding that it's not about us and we don't have to worry about what someone else thinks of us so much and we don't have to be concerned about our weaknesses in the sense that we're going to be exposed and we move on to a place of saying, actually, that is who I am. I am that weak. I am that incompetent. I do make mistakes. I do have areas of my life that are falling apart. I can't get it all right, and I never will, and I'm not very much like Jesus yet. And I'm a pastor, maybe, and I'm supposed to be something, and I'm just, I assure you, I'm not. Then when you don't care about that anymore, you're even more free, because now you're not praying to God, please make them like me. So I didn't pray that prayer for you guys to like me. Maybe you still will. That would just be a bonus. But th this is the problem. You either end up with like a, um, putting up massive facades and trying to keep them up, or you realize actually at the same time you're not that, so you feel like a fake, you're living a lie, you're hiding in the shadows. You have inner discussions going in your mind before you have a meeting, you prepare, you have a long debate with the person you're about to speak to. The problem with all of that is there's no intimacy. It's very, very lonely because no one really knows you, no one really sees you, and you're still too busy trying to defend an image of you that you know isn't you. And the end result is a really a kind of an emptiness, a, 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 a real loneliness. And as a believer, you should stop living like that. I mean, we shouldn't be, as a community of faith, we shouldn't be living those kind of lives. You shouldn't be looking at one another and passing judgment on one another and how, how you dressed or whether you fit in and all of those things. So how does, how does God want to work in our lives? Well, the hope is that the perfect love of God revealed in Christ casts out those fears, fears of being judged and found wanting. And we do begin to understand it more as we begin to understand the gospel more and start to apply it practically into our lives. See, what the gospel exp explains to us is that God looked at us exactly as we were, not just our present good moment, but he looked at our lives from start to finish and he saw every single moment of every day you would ever live. Which means God saw my future failures, even the worst ones that could yet come to pass. And in full view of all of that, he said, I choose you. 
He said, I'm, I'm choosing you, I'm electing you, I'm putting my hand on you, I'm going to reveal myself to you, I'm going to call your name, and I'm going to call you to come and be part of my family. And so the gospel comes and says, you are chosen, you're adopted, you're accepted, you're paid for, bought, redeemed, and taken ownership by God. He takes us into his family unconditionally. It's not based on our merits. Scripture explains. It's got nothing to do with how well we do, how good we are, how bad we are. It's just God saying, in my purposes, I'm taking you and I'm making you mine. So what the gospel tells us is you, you have acceptance before God. He's picked you for the team before you've proved your worth. And you will never have to prove your worth in order to be on that team to be picked by God because he saw the end from the beginning he saw all of your days and he said I want you you're mine I pick you and so when you come into that position of saying I'm already accepted you start to shift to this mindset that says well what can man do to me if that's what God's decided he's decided that he, he wants me he's chosen me despite who I am and I never had to impress him, I never had to pay him back, I never will have to. And so that thinking of the gospel gives us acceptance that we don't have to earn. There's, you can use fancy theological terms for it, you can talk about election and predestination, I don't care. The issue at stake here is God said, I want you and I will have you and I choose you. And I receive you, I accept you in Christ, in his redeeming mercy. Sanctified by his blood, justified by his grace, presented before God, acceptable through Christ Jesus. And so if I'm accepted by God, I don't care if you accept me or not. One level. Obviously, I'd still like to be a nice guy and like to be liked. But in reality, it doesn't matter what somebody else now thinks. And it doesn't matter if I make a stupid mistake. I can go to somebody, a friend, and I can phone him up and I can say, you won't believe what I've done. I did this. And if that guy's in Christ and I'm in Christ in the grace of God, that person will look at me and say, wow, you know what? That's not the end of the world. That's not such a big deal. We can work through that. We can move forwards from here. There's no, there's no fear of rejection. And that's what the gospel is supposed to do to you and me. It's supposed to remove that fear of rejection by telling us that we're accepted by God. But that's not even the end of the gospel because it goes beyond that and it says, not only are you accepted exactly as you are, all your good days and bad days, past and future, not only can you never fall out of God's love, though you might fall into his discipline, the Bible says you can also change. You can also be transformed. You can also ongoingly readjust your life to align with the values of the kingdom of God. And so the gospel comes and it sets us free. It places us in a strong position where we're accepted. You don't have to fear rejection from God ever. Even under his discipline, you are not under his wrath. Even under his discipline, you stay completely in the center of his love. And so you have a secure position, and then the gospel also says, but you cannot stay the way you are. 
Because the things about you that God doesn't like, he's going to come and say, repent of that, change this, line up your life according to his ways. And that's why you find Paul in, um, in Galatians writing about Peter. And Peter had been um, hanging out with the Gentiles, having a great time, enjoying the gospel, uniting Jew and Greek. And so he's having some friendship with Gentiles. And then Peter's old Jewish friends come down from Jerusalem and find him. And when they come to visit him, he stops hanging out with Gentiles. He, he's being hypocritical. He's putting on a different social um, norm to pander to the kind of racism of Judaism. And he, he, he kind of shuns his Gentile friends, pretends they don't exist because his Jewish friends have arrived in town. And Paul says, I rebuked him to his face because he was in the wrong. He was not acting according to the gospel. So the gospel, not only does it give us grace and accept it as we are, it also comes with an unction to repent and to be renewed and transformed ongoingly into a new way of living. And Peter, Paul called him out and said, Peter, this is hypocritical. You're not living according to the gospel. You're living a double life suddenly. You're pretending to your Jewish friends that you don't hang out with the Gentiles when you know the gospel says that you can hang out with the Gentiles. And so you see this powerful idea that the gospel not only like saves us, but it, it also changes us. So we are saved, but we are being saved. It's transformation that has to come. So I, I personally think the idea then is we should move towards a kind of community where we call ourselves out before a Paul comes and calls us out. But we have that liberty to call one another out on things too. Clearly, Paul did that to Peter for his good. It wasn't a, an unloving, competitive move. It was just, Peter, you're clearly misunderstanding that the gospel is supposed to change the way you live, and you've gone back to being like your old self with your Jewish friends. So the gospel will give us commands to repent repeatedly. It'll call us to change the way we live. It'll always ask us to have a being renewed value system, how you live, how you spend your money, how you spend your leisure time, how you relate to other people in different economic brackets, all of that's going to be put upon us too by the gospel. But I feel like when it comes down to the personal issues of being transparent, it's, it's really better um, for us to take the initiative and learn to build relationships where we're transparent, where we're not afraid to confess. And so what we're finding in the gospel is a fresh imperative for real relationship, for people to know who you are. And the gospel heals us of the fear of ultimate rejection and opens the door for true connection. True connection can only be built around truth and love. If you think about it, you feel lonely when you're hiding something, but once it comes out, you feel connected again. So I've had people in our church one young lady came and she confessed that she had um, slept with her boyfriend. Um, someone else came and confessed that at an earlier time in his life, he had uh, actually gone out and hired a prostitute. And he was in leadership in some form in the church. And someone else confessed something else. Now, the amazing thing about all these is I consider them all wins because those people brought their 
junk into the light. They voluntarily said, I've made this mess sometime in my life. The response when a penitent believer comes to you is to put down the stones and to start bringing healing. That's how the gospel deals with people. Someone comes and confesses the worst sin to me, I look at them and I think privately, wow, that's pretty bad. And then I say, I'm so glad that you shared this with me. And now let's talk about how God's going to heal you, how God's going to redeem the situation, how God's going to restore your soul into peace and a good conscience. One former pastor friend of mine actually said once, you, you can't put a price on a clean conscience. And I never forgot that phrase. You can't put a price on a clean conscience. Therefore, I live my life fairly transparently, as much as I can, with a certain number of people who I would be willing to be absolutely vulnerable with. You see, intimacy, which almost every human being craves, intimacy requires vulnerability. And vulnerability requires trust. And trust needs to be built on truth. So what are we freed from? We're freed from perfectionism and a performance mindset. We don't have something to prove. The gospel delivers us out of that. We're freed to enjoy excellence without demanding perfection. We can aim at good things, but we don't idolize the good things. We can want to live life well, but we don't fear if it doesn't go so well. We can confess it. We can share it without being afraid of being rejected. We're freed from earning our place. When the gospel takes a hold of your heart, you'd understand that before God, you are now called to take your place.